Hello and welcome to Better Together podcast series brought to you by Microsoft and One Identity. I'm Charles Commons and this is the final episode of this series of podcasts. So if you've not heard any of the previous ones, I suggest you go back and have a listen to those first before continuing on with this one. In episode one, we began this series by speaking about the importance of a zero trust security strategy and why companies should begin their journey to implement one. And then in episode two, we reviewed several Active Directory and Azure Active Directory best practices on how to secure those environments before sharing advice on how to prevent some of the most common AD exploits in episode three. In this episode, then, I'm joined once again by Dan Conrad, One Identity's Active Directory Management and Security Team Lead, to explore a number of specific solutions that can get you on the path to a zero trust security model. Welcome, Dan. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks. Good. So, Dan, um, the first step to zero trust is to secure the organization by protecting the people, applications, and data. Where exactly do we start? Well, the starting point is, uh, yeah, I mean, the first thing you have to do is realize you have a problem, right? And, and what we found, you know, based on many years of experience, is that um, getting the organizational goals aligned, or even from the perspective of training, getting that aligned towards concepts of protecting things helps significantly when trying to implement really anything from the protection plat- you know, portfolio. You know, we say, you know, training is a, is an issue. We want to get the, get, get the mind right first. And it really does help across um, the, the overall, when you're doing, whether you're selecting, you're doing implementations, you're changing the way people operate. Um, the training itself will help them realize why you're doing that, you know, because you don't, you can't get somebody to change and do something differently if they didn't see it as a problem. Um, you know, I think back to my years as a system administrator with, just pocketfuls of privileged accounts and, you know, shouting shared passwords across a room when you needed to and unnecessary rights and even the ability to bypass audits, you know, if we wanted to, you know, of course you would never do that way. But at that point, we, you know, most of us at that tier didn't realize that this was a problem. So it's, it really does help from a training perspective. And then when you're, when you're ready to move forward and implement um, really something in security, you want to go with, something that can give you your biggest bang. And um, in that space, um, you know, once you get the mentality shift, realizing that there's an issue, the biggest bang you can do is privileged access management or privileged account management is referred to it as PAM. Really from a couple of perspectives, um, they're the greatest vulnerabilities and are most likely to be exploited. So that's why zero trust exists. So we can get, get control of that. And then in reality, PAM implementations tend to move fairly quickly in regards to things like an identity governance implementation. So, you know, and I would even say that if your PAM implementation didn't move in, in a way that you thought was quick, well, maybe you got the wrong PAM implementation. But, you know, in, when you realize that you have a privileged access management problem and you need to get rid of these privileged exploits, you don't want to, uh, you know, it's sort of like your house is on fire. You don't want someone to show up out front of the house and start building a fire truck. You want a fire truck to show up and put the fire out and solve the problem. So, you know, where to start? In reality, you know, training would be my suggestion, but it's based on organizational priorities. I just say that the organizational priorities towards zero trust would be implemented easier if education and training and people understood that there was an actual problem to solve. 
Yeah, I think that's a lot about what we've sort of discussed in previous episodes, isn't it? About that that education of understanding what we actually need and, and the reasons as well why you need these things to be implemented for you. It's not just a case of going, right, don't share your password, don't do this. It's also about going, because this could happen. Yeah, we were actually called into a customer who had purchased a PAM solution. They hadn't socialized the idea of managing privileges through their top tier administrators. So they brought us into a conference room and we thought we were there just to discuss there's the further concepts in PAM. But what they wanted us to do was educate their administrators on what this was and how it worked. That didn't go over well. You know, we were telling them that, no, you're not going to have pocketfuls of credentials all the time. And it, it really, you know, the bruise to their ego was significant. And I understood that. It's just that we were completely unprepared for that conversation. So, you know, easing that mentality shift would have helped significantly in that, you know, both in that conversation, of course, for us and from the actual implementation. Yeah, I, I'm guessing that a lot of people will, and, and I, I would feel the same way. It's it's like you're being told, well, you're no longer allowed to do that thing. You're not allowed to go in that door anymore without a permission. Why don't you and trust me anymore? Exactly. Yeah, you end up feeling a little bit like, what have I done wrong? Exactly, exactly. And it's, it's really, you know, that conversation is best had saying we're protecting the credentials that you use. Not We're, we're not protecting them from you. We're protecting you and the credentials that you use. Absolutely. So what exactly in terms of solutions have one identity got to offer their customers to do this? Well, in the area of privilege access management, we offer a couple of things that actually fall into that zero trust space. So of course, we have a, a PAM solution, which is known as a safeguard. It's a suite of tools. So you can start with something like password vaulting, which is huge bang for your buck in regards to uh, implementation costs and things like that. So you can do that very quickly. And then you can add things to that, like session management, where admins don't necessarily need passwords ever. They simply need sessions onto the endpoints that they need to use. And then, you know, if you go a step further, you can add what's called a safeguard for privileged analytics that will not only monitor the passwords, cycle the passwords, but control the sessions and record session information, but it also do analytics on those sessions. So, for instance, if a uh, if an administrator, a top tier administrator checked out a credential and handed a keyboard to somebody else, Safeguard for Privileged Analytics would light up. It would know that this is not the person that just just used that. And then, of course, in the Active Directory space, you know, our big zero trust solution is called Active Roles. Active Roles is sort of a religion within the Active Directory community. So once you've used it, you kind of you'd love to use it because it's got all the automation and the cool bells and whistles. But those automation tools are there to provide stronger security in scale. And then we bundle those together and we get something called just-in-time provisioning for privileged access to Active Directory. So instead of me having this top-tier credential that's stored in Active Directory, that's always on, and maybe I'm the only one that knows the password to it, what I now have is the ability to ask for one or check one out like a library book. But that credential, when I'm not using it, is not privileged. And therefore, it's not subject to any of the attacks that would typically be scoped to Active Directory privilege escalation attacks. So I check it out, the credential gets enabled, the credential gets added to the right roles, and then I can go use it, whether that's a password or a session. And then when I'm done using it, I can simply check it back in and the process is reversed. So the uh, the account's disabled, the password is changed so that no human knows the password, and it's stripped of all of its roles and group memberships. So it's not vulnerable to exploit in any way. So what about multi-factor authentication then, Dan? What 
sort of products in the one identity portfolio are there to help businesses with that? Yeah, we've got it covered on the multi-factor side from desktop to cloud-based applications. So um, at the desktop level, we use a solution that's Active Directory integrated called Defender. And that gives you a, you know, control alt delete or whatever your your keystroke pattern is to your Windows platform. And you provide a, a token that can be a, a soft token on your phone or a physical hard token, whatever you need. And then um, we integrate with cloud-based applications for multi-factor through one login. So that gives us a great solution where we can give you that end-to-end user experience. In fact, for the Defender desktop login, we can actually use a one login cloud-based token and give the user the same token across all of their applications. And then within one login, you've got a great portal to manage your applications and how you users access those applications. And if you wanted to do things like step up authentication or security analytics on the authentication process, you know, if the user's coming from the same location over and over again, you know, that's fine. But if they change locations in a short period of time, you may want to prompt them for multi-factor. But it gives the user a great multi-factor experience from end to end. Sounds incredibly simple to actually just implement those into your organization, which is great and exactly what one identity wants, isn't it? Exactly. I mean, our goal is to, you know, you got that security functionality and, you know, uh, or uh, security functionality and um, what's the third one? You know, the triangle piece where we're putting it together. We're trying to make things very secure, but also very easy to implement. Um, but when you've got a lot of capabilities, Um, You want to be able to do everything, but you want to be able to do everything easy. And that's a difficult wrestling match to have. So when we put them together, we want to make them, you know, typically pertain to 99% of the most common use cases and have that all rolled into one, you know, right click out of the box. There you go. Solution with safeguard it's you know, very easy to implement because it's an appliance based solution. So you just basically install this in your environment, turn it on, whether it's a physical or virtual appliance, and then you start growing out from there. You can add things like availability and that sort of thing. And it's the same with active roles. So we want active roles to be out of the box. Active roles does exactly what you need it to do from an active directory security model perspective. You can start adding bells and whistles by adding functionality to it because it's got a lot of automation capabilities that many of our customers love to use. Um, but uh, that's necessary for um, you know automating security at scale as I keep circling back to, yes, it's great to automate. It's great to add bells and whistles, but do it for the right reasons. Do it for the security reasons. Absolutely. I've been trying to come up with a little analogy because I don't know whether you can hear it in the background, but Danny's having some landscaping done outside of his uh, apartment at the moment. And uh, I'm aware that it's it's there. I kept thinking there must be a way that I can bring this round to lawnmowers somehow, but it's it's completely escaped me. But just in case you were wondering what that noise was. Yeah, I, I can't think of a, a, a privileged lawnmower that you have to authenticate to. You wouldn't want anybody to just mow your lawn. So you want it done right. <laughs> There we go. We got there at the end. Um, On previous episodes, we've talked about the need to monitor your accounts and processes as well as part of your security procedures. Um, Dan, what do you advise companies do to address compliance and then audit requirements as well that are in place to manage identity sprawl and therefore prove that companies are adhering to their own policies? Well, I mean, to describe a concept like identity sprawl, I sort of look to the analogy of a a company that started small and then grew maybe to an international company. So if you started with 10 employees and every year you double in size, um, you know, in several years, you're going to have a, you know, quite a few employees. And then maybe you'll, you'll merge with another company and they'll have systems and they'll have people that have access 
um, it's, it becomes a huge problem with all of these connected systems that are both on-prem and in the cloud. And then, you know, when you have 10,000 employees and you've got turnover, you've got people that change roles within the company. Um, you can think of, you know, years ago, if somebody worked in a company for 20 years, they had several different roles throughout that 20 years. They probably had access to everything the company ever bought, owned, or acquired. So it gets to be a very big problem in regards to the identities of those employees and making sure that they have the right access to the right things. Uh, years ago, I ran a very large help desk. And uh, I say very large, it was, you know, that's, that's perspective. We had 15,000 users, 15,000 employees. And um, we were in the business of granting access. People would open tickets. We would grant access. People, we never got a ticket that I ever recall that someone said, I have too much access. Please take some of it away. So I want to you know, get control of that. So it's very important to know who has access to what, why they have it, how they got it, do they still need it, and is it for the right period of time? So we need to audit that and be able to report on that. And the big part is being able to prove who has access to what and why. Yeah, and, and again, it's not about not trusting the people. It's it's about just having that uh, th- that security there, so that you know that the right people have the right access to be able to do their job as and when they need to, and not necessarily all of the time. It's it's exactly the same way, I suppose, as what you would monitor or how you would monitor people accessing your building. You don't necessarily want people going there at say one or two a.m. in the morning unless they're supposed to be there and mainly because of the fact that you want your employees to go and get a good night's sleep. Well, right, right. And, you know, overall, it's a matter of, uh, from an auditing perspective, it's a nightmare. If you ever go through a, a certification or an audit, trying to validate access when everybody has access to everything, or, or maybe there's just no way to automate that audit where someone can tell you who has access to what and why they have it. Um, but when we talk about that audit, there's a reason that audit happens. And that's because we're sort of accounting for the compromise of that user's credential. Like what would happen if either that user was a terrible employee or their credential was actually compromised? Um, what would happen? What, what kind of impact would that have to the organization? Yeah, definitely. Um, obviously security is an incredibly important area for organizations to focus on, but we know that efficiency is always going to be up there as well for any business. Can you just explain how a company can ensure that they still have a high level of security while remaining efficient in their productivity? Well, you know, automation is a big key of that. So, uh, you know, I'm talking, looking back to the uh, small company that grew. If you just hire more people to create accounts, that's not really efficiency. Um, if you just give everybody access to everything, that's not efficiency. And of course, in a lot of scenarios, it's not cost effective. So um, we really want to do things in the automation space that add to that level of security because we can sit down on a whiteboard and we can decide what we want to happen, who should have access to what and what level of access they should have to you know, on-prem systems, cloud-based systems, you know, whatever it would be. But we need a way to tec- technically implement that written solution because we can't do it at scale manually. We can't audit it. We can't create it. We can't make changes to it through manual processes. It's, it's just not going to be, uh, it's going to be a series of one-offs that really can't be implemented manually. And it won't be a, it won't be a real security or access policy at scale. 
Brilliant. Okay. Um, can we just go through maybe how the onboarding of a new employee might happen? When you're talking about the onboarding of an employee, we want to make sure that they're first off productive on day one, but productive in a secure way. So we look to a source of truth. Most large organizations, if not all of them, have an HR system. So we want that HR system to be the source of truth. And it's important for HR to realize that they are a source of truth. And, you know, they take their jobs very seriously in most, most scenarios. So when someone has access to the HR system, of course, that's, a, that's another discussion point right there. So we make sure that the data is correct in the HR system. When the person is onboarded, we want to give them immediate access, whether that's, you know, they sh- if they show up at an office building on day one, they get their badge issued and that sort of thing. Or if they're a remote employee, for instance, we want to get them, make sure that their desk or their workstation is set up, their laptop, they're traveling, all of that sort of thing. But we want to make sure that they have multi-factor on day one so that first off, they're used to using it. It's a, you know, if they haven't done it before, this is how we do it in my company. Multi-factor is required for all systems. And that's multi-factor to the desktop, multi-factor authentication to cloud-based applications because we value our credentials and we know what the what the scenario could be if it doesn't work out correctly. And we want to make sure that any system, you know, if they come on board and they're in the accounting department or whatever it would be, and they have a certain role in that accounting department, that the end systems that that person would use, you know, could be Salesforce, it could be, um, you know, whatever the accounting systems would be that they would use. We want to make sure that that person is provisioned correctly in that role. And then they come to work on day one, and what do you know? They can actually work. They have the rights to do things. There may be scenarios where a manager or a supervisor needs to request specific access for them to certain systems because they've been hired in a unique role. We want to make that an available system that they can actually ask for that access, and we have an audit trail of how they got it and who asked for it. Then if they change roles, maybe they move from accounting to sales. I don't know if that's a logical transition, but um, suppose they did. Of course, when they move to another role outside of the accounting department, we want to make sure that those rights in the accounting department leave as soon as possible. Now, maybe there's a phase over period where they need access to both sides, but that can be accounted for as well. So when they get their new job in the sales department, they have immediately have access to Salesforce and they're doing whatever it is they need to do in that system with the right roles and responsibilities. With, you know, of course, that changes when their managers change and when their departments change. And then they work there a few years and then uh, they're on their way out the door. They transition to an, another company. We want to make sure that when they leave that company, that their ab- ability to authenticate within that company is immediately removed and all the end systems that they were using, whether those are cloud-based systems or on-prem systems, are immediately terminated when that employee no longer requires that access. That was sort of a long, drawn-out, you know, cradle-to-grave scenario, but I hope that clears up a little bit. No, absolutely. I mean, it shows the importance actually of how implementing it straight away so that when somebody arrives in your business as a new employee or a contractor or whatever, they're instantly brought into the same philosophy of that security so that it must be a little bit harder if you're an existing employee you know we talked about the educational side of things and and how we'll actually have to go ahead and and explain the reasons why and that it isn't about not trusting people it's about making sure that they have the right tools to do the right job and not really anything else and just protecting the assets of the business um but it does show you that if you can get people in from day one 
using multi-factor authentication straight away it's what they then know and it's what they expect and then when it comes to the point where they like you say they move from accounting to sales or whichever department that they might go to they expect to actually have certain access relinquished and then they gain access to others and it's i suppose a little bit again it's of education but there's also got to be the right kind of systems in place to make that a smooth transition so that I guess people don't start going, oh, this is just too much hassle. If we just gave everybody access to everything, then it would just happen and we wouldn't need to worry. Nobody would complain, right? And we do realize that uh, you know organizations, large organizations specifically, are not static. They're always gaining new systems or um, terminating old systems and that sort of thing, maybe migrating to cloud-based systems from on-prem. So that needs to be a very fluid model where the organization itself can actually make the changes to things like the provisioning process, as we call it, or the, you know, reprovisioning so that they can go in and say, you know, that we've re-whiteboarded this scenario and the person that moves from accounting to sales should automatically be, you know, issued a new laptop because X, Y, Z. So we realize that things change within the organization. You can't really just, you know, snapshot a point in time and say, this is the way it's always going to be. Yeah. Over the whole series, Dan, we've been talking about zero trust, of course. Could you just sum up the importance of working towards a zero trust security model for me? Well, yeah, you sort of have to define it a little bit. You know, we speak to customers all day long that are implementing zero trust, and they all have a different perception of what they visualize their endpoint of zero trust or the direction of zero trust to be. First off, it's not an endpoint. It's um, it's a direction or you know, it's it's something to work towards. It's a mentality shift. So, uh, you know, you look back to in 2010, there was the original definition was by a, a, a man named John Kindervag, who uh, created this concept that it was uh, the quote says something about the outdated assumption that everything inside an organization's network should be trusted. And, you know, that's like just because you're in the building doesn't mean you get access to everything. So we need to get away from that sort of mentality um, and and this doesn't just apply to identity as I'm speaking today. In my opinion, you know, 90% of it is identity, but um, it does apply to other systems. So if you're looking at things like applications or networks or even end devices and the way they operate, the way they interact with each other, all of that is sort of this zero trust mentality that you need to evaluate. You know, we years ago, we used to look at uh, network ports inside buildings. Can anybody walk in and just plug into these? So we started to put things in place in, you know, probably the early 2000s that you couldn't just do that anymore. Um, from my perspective, I'm protecting the identity so that the credentials and the authentication and the privileges that go with that identity are tied up in this zero trust model where just because you authenticate it doesn't mean you get access to everything. Just because the credentials are correct doesn't mean you have unlimited privilege in, in these systems. So we got to make sure, you know, first off, from an identity perspective, that people are who they say they are, you know, and that's specifically authentication. And when I look at authentication, I always look back to multi-factor. So I want to make sure that, you know, somebody can't use someone else's credential. We talked about how to crack passwords. Like, well, let's just make that not an issue anymore when I put multi-factor on my systems. And then we want to make sure that the people themselves have the exact permission to do what their job requires. Nothing more, nothing less. And at the time that it's required. So if they only need to work on a specific project for 60 days, we want to remove that access after 60 days. 
And then the big circle of life that comes back, we need to be able to prove that this axis is accurate. Um, it's a very important step that you can actually prove it to yourself and that you can prove it to auditors. Absolutely. I, I always, I don't know, when we're talking about zero trust, for some reason, the thing that comes straight into my mind is any kind of spy movie where you see somebody having to, you know, the spy has to go and gain access to a building or a part of the building. And all they have to do is just get the lowly security card, knock him out and take his pass. And then all of a sudden <laughs> they can gain access to the nuclear bunker or wherever it is. And you think, how is that possible? And you, in a way, it sort of, it shows how much actually in a, in a funny way, that's a, a really quick and easy example to maybe share with people about how, you know, that that kind of thing, your nuclear bunker, if you think about it, unless, of course, you are working in nuclear, is going to be your database, for example. And that's the one thing that you don't want anybody to have access to. And you also don't want somebody just to come along and pretend that they are somebody as well, which is where the multi-factor comes in uh, and things like that. Although I will say, I'm sure Mission Impossible got around it by having not only face masks and uh, some sort of retina scan <laughs> that they were able to put into a contact lens and then a voice encoder or something as well. So <laughs> there might be right. workarounds somehow, although <laughs> extravagant one. I, I have seen that. You know, being in this business, it kind of, you catch that. You know, I was watching the show and I saw them knock, like you said, knock out the security guard and grab his card and swipe it. But the, the door they swiped it on had a keypad on it. They go, wait a minute, there's a multi-factor on this. You have to know a pin code too. Nobody, the, the door swings magically open to keep this storyline moving. But um, <laughs> I, I hope people start to think that direction, you know, like, like you were just saying, like, wait a minute, that probably shouldn't work. Yeah, no, that's absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for joining me throughout this series, Dan. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. And thank you too. Uh, for joining us as well. This has been Better Together, brought to you by Microsoft and One Identity. Throughout this series, we've discussed the importance of working towards a policy of zero trust. And given that the solutions available from One Identity are built on Microsoft solutions, it's clear that Microsoft and One Identity work better together to deliver zero trust. For more information on how One Identity and Microsoft are better together, go to oneidentity.com forward slash better together security.